to you about the early Christian church. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this uh, topic now and in two sessions in August and early September, I think, when I'm back with you. Uh, my dissertation was on John Wesley's use of early Christian sources, so I've kind of gone back and forth between the 18th century and the early Christian church, uh, and I'm uh, very happy to, uh, to be speaking on a subject that I like getting back to from time to time. Now, if I can find my Bible, and it really is in here in the books section, I want to begin by reading you a couple of verses from the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, I'm going to read you Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 41, which is describing the period right after St. Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and right after he's preached on the day of Pentecost, it describes the organization of the Christian church on the very first day of its existence. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in the prayers. Eternal God, as we come to consider your word and the promises and challenges for us that we find in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us today, descend upon your church today. Give us words to speak and words to hear that we may know your truth and we may live by it. For we ask it in the name of Christ our Savior and for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you have the uh, outline, I realize I'm supposed to be clicking through the outline there. Right, that's the way it goes, and here we go. I'm going to be talking about the early Christian church, uh, and today I want to speak about the early Christian church in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Acts 2, 41 to 42, the, the passage that I have read you, is a kind of idealized image of the church in the very first days of its existence. But it's kind of interesting, I think, to think about what is not mentioned in this passage uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, uh, it's kind of surprising if you think about this as a basic blueprint for church. Some of the most critical things that we think about as being part of the church are really not present there in that description of what the church was like on the day of Pentecost. So I think if we were sort of scheduling this uh, speech of uh, St. Peter and then the response to it, and we could write out what we expected to find in Acts 2, 41 to 42, it might be something like this. And all the believers who received the words of the blessed apostle did then buy fields wherein they could build great church buildings with gothic pointed arches and darkly stained and polished wooden pews. Yea, verily, and they crafted pipe organs so that they might sit quietly in pews for organ preludes and organ postludes. They also did adopt hymnals so that believers might sing together to the goodly accompaniment of the organ. And diverse others of the believers did craft unto themselves electric guitars and bass guitars and massive electronic amplifiers and drum kits and microphones and PA systems and projection screens wherewith they might sing contemporary Christian choruses. The believers did also print Bibles with leather bindings and the words of Jesus in red. They distributed collection plates into which they could place their shekels and denarii in appropriately marked paper envelopes. You don't have the envelopes in? Gosh. 
Then at last did they form unto themselves wondrous committees that met very often <laughs> and made lists upon whiteboards and upon sheets of newsprint affixed unto walls and so on. This is kind of what you might expect if you're saying this is what happened on the very first day of the church when the church as we know it was organized. Now there's actually a United Methodist version of this, Acts 2, 41 to 42, that would go something like the following. And all the believers who received the words of the blessed apostle did publish books of discipline and books of hymns and books of resolutions for the edification of the church. And they organized local units of United Methodist women and United Methodist men and United Methodist Youth Fellowship. And they did travel unto Haiti on volunteers and mission work trips. And they supported youth fundraisers to Pensacola and other places in Florida. And they had traditional worship and contemporary worship and kerygma worship at 11 a.m. following the holy tradition of the church. And they did institute and continue covered dish suppers according to the ordinance of the holy apostles with fried chicken and baked beans and, and green jello and always with deviled eggs with paprika sprinkled upon the top to represent the fire of the Holy Ghost and three-bean marinated salads representing the interpenetration of the sacred persons of the divine trinity. And following the true word of our Lord Jesus, did they hold the Lord's Supper upon the first Sunday of every month, utilizing Mrs. Baird's bread and Welch's Concord grape juice, according to Christ our Savior's holy institution. Something like that uh, is what, yes, thank you very much. That's, that's what we might uh, expect, I mean, if the church really did what we expected uh, the church to do. But it, it really seems to be a very simple image of the church. None of that stuff, pews and organs and books of disciplines and even, dare I say it, district superintendents and so forth, none of that appear at least in this initial image of the church that we get in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. A very simple image of the church given here Maybe something like my Campbell forebears who were part of the Churches of Christ. And, the, you know, the old-fashioned Church of Christ folks, they, they think you shouldn't do anything except what's explicitly mentioned in the New Testament, which does give their worship a kind of wonderfully simple uh, air to it. I, I attended... Uh, the Preston Road Church of Christ, and, and see, there's one of the things. They, they say there is no precedent for naming a church for anything except the area where it's located. So Highland Park is okay, but you don't go naming your church Cornerstone Fellowship, you know, all these kind of things that we name churches as St. Peter's and so forth. They just say the only precedent is the church at Antioch and the church at Rome and so forth. And so after I visited Preston Road Church of Christ a few years ago, I wrote an article called Why the Churches of Christ Were Right After All. And suddenly it, it sort of went viral. Uh, you can imagine who might have liked this. I got calls from cousins I hadn't heard from in years saying, do you really believe that stuff? And I said, yeah, I really do. I mean, I like their a cappella singing and the simplicity of their worship and so forth. But this image of, of, of the simple church in Acts of the Apostles has about seven things that I identify here that really are abiding elements of Christian communities. Uh, they had preaching, okay? This is all predicated on the preaching of St. Peter on the day of Pentecost. They received his word, that is to say, 
they believed. They had faith in Christ, uh, those who received the word of the apostle. They had preaching, they had faith, and all those who received his word that day were baptized, okay? So baptism was one of the elements of the church there from the beginning. They abided in the apostles' teaching. I need not tell you, I'm pretty sure that meant the basic gospel message about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have affirmed today in the Apostles' Creed. They had the breaking of bread. Uh, I think that meant both what we call the Lord's Supper and something like covered dish suppers. So if Methodists want to talk about covered dish suppers as a quasi-sacrament, I'm cool with that, okay? They had the Apostles' Fellowship. Uh, Methodists love to talk about fellowship. We always have fellowship halls. It, it, it denotes something warm and fuzzy to us, but I'm going to suggest it may have denoted something a little sharper uh, to these early uh, disciples of Jesus. And then it says they had the prayers. And I'm going to make something of the fact that it doesn't just say they had prayers, but they had the prayers and what that may in particular uh, have meant. I think there, there was some complexity lurking underneath that very simple, perhaps a little bit romanticized or idealized image of the early church, especially if you consider the early church against its background, its background in the ancient world, uh, and also its background against the uh, teachings of Judaism and the practices of Judaism that were so much part of the early church. So today I want to consider uh, these seven elements of the church from the very first day that the church has existed uh, and some of the complexities that may have lain underneath uh, all of this. Uh, sorry about the uh, words going over each other. I didn't use the right fonts here. Peter's preaching occurred on the day of Pentecost uh, and that's one of the prominent Jewish festivals. Pentecostis in Greek, as you've probably heard in here, means 50 days. That really means, you know, the way they counted days was they would say a week is eight days. It's from Sunday to the next Sunday. So 50 days, that really means the space of 49 full days. That means 47 times 7 is 49, right? Is that right? I, I, yeah, I think I got through math. Uh, and so seven weeks after uh, Easter is the day of Pentecost. Uh, and it was one of the great Jewish festivals. So it's a little indication that the Christians at this point are following some of the ceremonies of the Jewish calendar. As a matter of fact, Paul uses words for the Jewish festivals quite commonly. He will say, uh, I mean to come up to Troas by by Pentecost, or uh, when I'm up at this place in Passover, then I'm going to do this and that. So there are clues in the New Testament that the early Christians worshipped according to Jewish worship traditions. That gives a little more complexity to it than we may have thought about in the past. Peter's preaching in the second chapter of the Acts presupposed the Jewish culture to which he was speaking. Uh, if you go through the sermons in the New Testament, by the way, this is the longest sermon recorded in the New Testament. Uh, and 
it comes out to 176 words in Greek. And if you want to know how long that is in minutes and seconds, you'll be very pleased to know that I've timed it using a Timex Ironman triathlon sports watch. And this entire sermon comes out to about seven minutes. So, Brother Walt, I'm saying that's the apostolic pattern of preaching in the New Testament. Other preachers think they've got more to say than the holy apostles. Then, you know, actually, the, the, the problem with that is that I, I think it's true that these sermons to non-Christian audiences were very short. So you can see the appeal. People said, hey, Short sermons, cool religion. I think I'm going to be a Christian and so forth. <laughs> then we bring them in and 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 because because there's a story later in the apostle about somebody who's preaching, and he's preaching so late into the night that some poor dude falls, says he fell three floors to what appeared to be his death, and then the holy apostle comes and lays hands on him and and raises him up, and that that's really cool. But the but the two horrifying things were, I mean, the guy was seriously injured, I'm sure, but, but the length of the sermon, I mean, for heaven's sake, it must have just gone on and on and on and on and on. I'm not convinced that their sermons were always uh, long like that. In fact, this is a good example of a short, it's a short, brief sermon, but it appeals to Jewish culture, consistently appeals to Jewish scripture, Jewish traditions, and so forth. Interestingly, though, that's not always uh, the case, as we will see. At the heart of Peter's preaching was the announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Okay, The center of this was simply announcing the message about what God has done in Christ. What do you call in the Greek language, what is the word for a message, the basic message that's been proclaimed? Anybody know that? It's a cool word in Greek. It's kirigma. Can you say that? Kirigma. <laughs> In the East Texas Greek, I learned it's kerugma, kerugma, okay, East Texas Greek, but kerygma is the way Greek people say it. You've heard of that word, okay, basically, a curix is a herald, you know, not H-A-R-O-L-D, like old weird herald, but a, a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, that really means the evening newscaster, somebody who comes through the town in the evening and says, this person has been elected, and this person has da -da -da -da, had an accident on their chariot, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, the content of the message was the kerygma, okay? So, so Peter's preaching is about the basic Christian kerygma, okay? Remember that in this service. That's very important. Well, you've told them that before, I'm sure, Walt, but, but you just got to come back to it. You got to come back to it from time to time. That's the subject. But a very different pattern appears in the 17th chapter of Acts, where Paul is preaching. Now, you see, Paul feels like he's got a special message to the uncircumcised people. Peter is called to the circumcised. Paul is called to the uncircumcised. Peter's preaching involves Jewish culture. But look at Paul's sermon recorded in the 17th chapter of Acts. In Paul's sermon, there's very little reference, if at all, to Jewish culture. He quotes Greek poets, as some of your poets have said, he says, and he quotes poets saying, in him we live and move and have our being. I think that's Hesiod, the ancient uh, Greek poet. Uh, and he even sort of sucks up to the local religious culture. This is almost shocking if you think about it, but Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, the Areopagus in, in uh, Athens, 
And he says, you know, a funny thing happened on the way here. I noticed an altar inscribed Agnostotheo, to an unknown God. I'm here to tell you about that unknown God. I mean, he sort of connects himself to native religious traditions. Kind of like if you visit other places in the world where Christianity has spread, you find that Christians very often place their churches on the exact sites of pre-Christian worship places. There's a lovely place in Mexico City called the Plaza of the Three Cultures. And it's got Aztecan ruins that you can see very graphically in this big square. And then it's got a colonial Spanish church. And then it's got modern high-rise apartments all around this particular square. So the three cultures are the Mayan, excuse me, the Aztecan culture of that area. And then the Spanish colonial culture represented by that uh, Church of St. James, and then uh, there's the culture of modernity surrounding it. But the point is they built that church right on top of an Aztec place of worship. In fact, now if you go to the Zocalo in the middle of Mexico City and you walk up the steps to the great cathedral there, they've now put in plexiglass windows so you can see down to the steps of the Aztecan Templo Mayor, the great Aztec temple that was there on that particular site. So Christians were kind of comfortable with camping on to the native religious traditions of other people. And that's one of the things that early Christian preaching involved. They knew their culture. What would it mean today for us to know our cultures in which we live and try to relate the Christian message to those cultures? One of my very favorite books is a very old one. It's by the British scholar C.H. Dodd. Actually, he's a Welsh scholar of New Testament in Oxford. C.H. Dodd wrote in 1936 a book called The Apostolic Preaching and Its Development. Very simple book in which he laid out in a kind of fold-out chart all of the sermons in the New Testament and showed how they had this parallel structure of focusing on the announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And of course, what Dr. Dodd went on to say is that this is the root of all the Christian creeds. The Apostles' Creed focuses on what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. The Nicene Creed uses the same words about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. So preaching is one of the things that was there from the very beginning. The second thing is that they received the words of the apostles. On the day of Pentecost, it says 3,000 persons were added to their fellowship. Now, we don't know if that's exactly. In fact, I think it says about. John Wesley will say, I preached to about 3,000 persons at Gwenup Pit in Cornwall. So Methodists a few years ago tried to, an experiment and tried to see how many warm bodies they could actually shove into Gwenup Pit, and it was about 300. So we think John Wesley's estimates of congregations were pastoral estimates, Brother Walter. <laughs> pastoral estimates of the congregation. I don't know if this is a pastoral estimate of how many people were baptized, but they're growing uh, on the day of Pentecost. They receive the message, the preaching, the kerygma of St. Peter. And they, by uh, receiving that message, it basically means they assented to that message. It doesn't go into great detail about what it meant to believe, but certainly uh, assent, consent, is something that they did. They, they heard that message and they said yes or amen or whatever term they used to say. Right, you know, we want to we believe this message 
about Jesus. Now, faith is not just a mental activity, but it's something that involves trust with all of our being. One of the things we like to say as Methodists is that faith is not simply assent to a number of facts, but it involves your heart. Here's John Wesley. John Wesley says, Christian faith is not a train of ideas in the head, but a disposition of the heart. Well, it had to be in the earliest decades and centuries of Christianity when you could be persecuted for your Christian faith. Uh, you weren't going to just say, well, I have this idea in my head, so you know, I'm willing to go to death for that. It had to be something you believed with heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of your being. In fact, John Wesley uses an interesting example here. He says, the devils... Okay, the demons know that Jesus is the Christ, right? It says, says so in the scriptures that they, they, they said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, but that's not Christian faith, John Wesley says, because they didn't love him. Okay, so faith involves more than just the idea of who Jesus is. It means you assent, you receive, you embrace this teaching with all uh, of your being. Faith is something that the church uh, is founded on. And then baptism. I had the opportunity to perform a baptism about two weeks ago. Now, I very seldom get to perform baptisms. It was a wonderful day over at Lover's Lane. We uh, baptized an infant and went through the ritual and received them into the church. But baptism itself probably has a Jewish origin. I remember speaking just within the last year or two here at this class, and one of the things you may remember that I said about baptism is that there was a Jewish, there is a Jewish cleansing ritual that's called the mikvah, uh, and it's done, can be done at different times in a person's life, but part of the ritual even today for becoming a Jew is you have to assent to the Jewish faith, and you actually, I think they ask you to sign a statement or make a public witness that you have not been coerced into believing as a Jew, and they insist that you go through the mikvah ritual, uh, this, this ritual ablution or, or bathing ritual. Now, we're not quite sure if this originated right at the time of Jesus or just before the time of Jesus. In fact, it's very interesting to, to think about it. John the Baptist had preached that people needed to repent of their sins and be baptized. That basically, I hate to tell you this, Methodist, but it really means dunked. It really means they need to be dunked in the water, right? Uh, and, uh, and so what did he mean by that? Well, if it was associated with becoming a Jew, it, it would have a kind of contradictory meaning because it would be like John the Baptist is preaching Jews, saying, you Jews need to become Jews. Does that make any sense at all? Well, actually, it kind of does if, if you read what John said because he said, do not presume to say we have Abraham as our father God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones here, right? In other words, he's saying, those of you who are Jews because your parents were Jews, your ancestors, were, you need to become Jews kind of in your hearts. It's not just a matter of being born into a family. Uh, it's, it's a matter of embracing this for yourself. Uh, 
I think that may be what John meant, and it's part of the challenge of Christian baptism uh, is that it's not simply an act of belonging, not simply an act of incorporating that infant into the Christian community. That is an act of belonging, and we take that infant into our community. But sooner or later, that infant is going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to make a decision. This is my faith, and I'm going to say it for myself. That's an important part of becoming a Christian. Jesus himself was baptized. That sometimes leads people to worry about, well, if he was sinless, why did he need baptism to wash away his sins? I sometimes say you're, you're getting the cart before the horse here. Really, baptism is incorporation into this community. Jesus identifies with this new community by being baptized by St. John. Baptism is the mark of entry into the early Christian community and almost every Christian group today practices baptism in some form. You could object on a couple of points. The Salvation Army doesn't practice baptism or the Lord's Supper, but if you talk to those who know their history very well, what they'll tell you is that General Booth simply suspended performing the sacraments, but, but they're not opposed to it. So I've seen Salvation Army officers in their uniforms receiving the Lord's Supper. I've never seen any of them get baptized before, but I understand that's happened. It's not against their rules. It's just not something that they themselves perform as a group. But almost every Christian community practices baptism as the means by which they incorporate people. Now that raises the issue of infant baptism, and I'm not going to get into that issue deeply today. Uh, except to say that in our hymnal we now place the ritual for adult baptism first and the ritual for infant baptism second, reversing the order in which we traditionally put it and saying in a way there's a sense in which adult baptism is normative because it has the whole thing. It's got incorporation into the community with the rite of baptism and importantly the public profession of faith on the part of the person uh, whom we're receiving in that case. And we continue to practice infant baptism. In the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 16 or 17, there are two places where it says whole families were baptized, right? The family of the Philippian jailer and the family of Lydia. Ah, Father's Day. I have a daughter named Lydia, so I always think about her. Uh, and uh, it doesn't say they baptized everybody in the family above the age of 12 or something like that. It just says they baptized the whole family. So it looks like they included the whole family, whether they were able to make a public profession or not. Element four is the apostles' teaching. They abided in the teaching of the apostles. Now, you know, when I read that the first time, I thought, well, maybe it refers to a kind of catechism they had or something like that. The more I think about it, I think the expression, the apostles' teaching, simply referred to that proclamation of, uh, I say, the content of St. Peter's preaching. Yes, the, the content of the message that Peter preached on that day, that Paul gave later in 1 Corinthians 15, that message that is the basic kerygma, the announcement about Jesus Christ, or what Paul also calls the gospel, the evangelion, the good news about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives the gospel as he himself had received it. Now, it's an interesting thing because elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says, I didn't receive this gospel from any human source. I received it as a revelation from Jesus Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he says twice, I hand on to you, it really says y'all in Greek, I hand on to y'all what I also receive. So however he received this message, he gives the content of it here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, the message is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That basic announcement about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ is what Paul called the gospel and what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. The consistent elements in that proclamation are the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that the statement that he was buried is just a way of strengthening the statement that he died. Yes, he really, really, truly Died. Another way you could say that in sort of weird ancient culture was to say he went to the place of the dead. That would be a way of saying a person really, really, truly died. And the, the place of the dead in Greek is Hades, uh, Hades, or uh, translated probably inappropriately hell in English. But in the Apostles' Creed, you know, the actual Apostles' Creed, not the version Methodists usually say, like we did today. It says, descendit ad inferos. He went to the, literally, to the underworld. That means he went to the place of the dead. Doesn't mean that he went to hell, like the place where condemned sinners are sent for punishment. That's what Methodists always worried about, and that's why we stopped saying he descended into hell. But it really means he really, really, really died. Okay, It sort of emphasizes that fact. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus are the cardinal points. God has accomplished our salvation. These works are according to the scriptures. Now, at the time when Paul wrote that this is according to the scriptures, there were no Christian scriptures in existence. He's just beginning to write them. So it means according to the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish traditions that he had received. But this is the basis of our creeds. This is the basis of the celebration of the Christian year. Every year from Advent to Christmas to Epiphany to Lent to Easter, we go back through that same story over and over and over again. We abide in the apostles' teaching. Element five is the breaking of the bread. Uh, Jewish origins of the Lord's Supper. Go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 11 verses 21 to 24 and the surrounding verses there. By the way, this is where Paul says the Lord's Supper. He uses the term the Supper of the Lord in case you want to have an argument with your Baptist or Episcopal friends who want to call it Holy Communion, which we also call it or whatever. Uh, this, we just say, well, we just stick to scripture language here. Okay, we just, the Lord's Supper is the language that Paul used. I had an Episcopalian tell me one time, well, the word Lord's Supper is not used in the New Testament. I said, yes, it is. And I pointed it out to him in 1 Corinthians 11. It's the same kind of traditioning narrative in 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I handed on to you. 
or y'all, okay? That same kind of language about, and that's where, really what it says in Greek. It's, if you learn proper English, I, we, you, y'all, he, she, it, they. I mean, it's, <laughs> this, is, this is a y'all. This ain't simply you, okay? This is, this is not addressed to an individual. This is addressed to a group, a community of people. This is an act of traditioning on the part of a whole community, okay? So this traditioning of the supper is written down before any of the Gospels are written down. It's the same kind of tradition, though, that you get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and possibly with a parallel in John, though we're not quite sure if the meal described in John is exactly the same meal as described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's a Jewish meal. It's a Passover meal. It's the Passover Seder, where the basic story of Israel's salvation is recounted uh, and uh, Christ says, this is my body and this is my blood, taking bread and Welch's grape juice. Is that what it says in the New Testament? No, I think it actually says something else that Methodists don't like to mention. The early Christians, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, met on the first day of the week to break bread. That's what they did. That's why my Campbellite ancestors, my Church of Christ forebears, have the Lord's Supper every Sunday because the New Testament doesn't mention pianos, but it does explicitly mention, they don't have pianos, but it does explicitly mention that they met on the first day of the week to break bread. And as I like to tell my students, that was the uniform practice of Christians until about the 1530s where, where Protestants had this innovation that you could have church without having the Lord's Supper every Sunday, but you know we're still the minority. I mean, if you realize that Catholics are the majority of Christians, simply put, and add Eastern Orthodox and Churches of Christ and Disciples of Christ and Anglicans and Lutherans who celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, not all of them do, but a lot of them do. It's a great majority of Christians who celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and in fact, I myself think it ought to be our normative practice. Uh, we have a statement as United Methodists that we ought to be working towards the goal of weekly Holy Communion. And one of the nice things about being a large church like Highland Park or Lover's Lane is uh, a church like this can have a service of the Lord's Supper available to everyone uh, every week. The Supper is, I think, a continuation of the ancient idea of a sacrifice, that very complicated idea, not just giving up something that you really, really want. Uh, that, that, that's not the basic idea of sacrifice. It's the idea of making an offering to God of the very best that you have, except that here this offering is turned around and God becomes the offering. It's like God himself gets up the altar and becomes a human being for our sake. I ask my students sometimes, is Jesus Christ the savior of Klingons? And they all, they're so pious. Our students at Perkins, they're so religious, and not always, but, uh, but, but they usually think the correct answer has to be, well, yes, of course, Jesus is the savior of Klingons. Now, Klingons are a fiction, I know, but don't worry about details like that. It's just that if there are people on other planets, is Jesus their savior? That my students always, but, but I say, no, the New Testament says what Jesus did was for human beings. He became a human being for our sake. Now, I don't know how God is going to save the Klingons, and the Klingons really need it. Um, and, and they need it badly. <coughs> I don't know how God is going to save them, but 
C.S. Lewis once said about Martians that if there are Martians, he says, no doubt God will figure out a way to save them. But what Jesus Christ did is for us as human beings and his, the supper is a deeper way of telling the mystery of Christ. It brings us into that mystery of self-giving and sacrifice. Uh, but the supper was tied to common meals. It looks like at the point in, in the Acts of the Apostles as being described, there was no difference between having a meal together at which you remember Jesus and having a kind of sacred celebration of the life of Jesus. Now, early on, they had to separate out that stuff. Paul himself kind of gives the justification for separating it because he says, some of y'all, and it's plural again, uh, some of y'all come to church and, and, and you've got a big meal that you've brought and you sit there eating your big fancy meal in front of everybody and the poor people, they don't have anything like that and you make them feel terrible. Uh, so I, I suggest you eat your big fancy meal before you come to church and then when you come to church, we're just going to have the kind of sacred part of it in which we tell the story of Jesus. But I would say there's a sense in which the supper is never complete apart from having fellowship meals. Does class ever have a fellowship meal together? Monthly. Yeah, monthly. Okay, so you, you should. That's part of, the, part of the thing. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, um, you can have bread that they've blessed but not consecrated after the service. They don't, they don't allow non-Orthodox people to have the actual elements of the Lord's Supper, but you can have the blessed but unconsecrated bread. It's what they call antidoron, the after gift, and it's the, the remains of the old love feast that Christians used to celebrate uh, together. So I would say a good rule would be anytime we have the Lord's Supper, we really ought to have a kind of covered dish supper, and if Methodists want to call that a, a semi-sacrament, I'm all in favor of that, but you do have to have the three bean marinated salad, or it's not an, it's not an orthodox uh, covered dish supper and the eggs with the paprika on top. And some of you see the episode of, of Oprah about that. It was Oprah and Whitney Houston t chit chatting together, and Whitney Houston said something about you got to have paprika on the on the on the deviled eggs. And and Oprah said, Oh yeah. And Whitney Houston said, Is that a black thing? And you know, it's just the comment went over, but apparently. Thousands of white women started w sending in their photos of their deviled eggs with the paprika on top. And so later, Oprah had a parade of women with their paprika on top of the eggs and so forth. So this is kind of an orthodox part of the tradition of the covered dish supper that you got to have. The Apostles' Fellowship. We like fellowship. It's a warm, fuzzy idea, but maybe there was a little more to it than what we think about. The word used here is the word that in East Texas Greek is koinonia, uh, and that in the way Greek people, now what do Greek people know about pronouncing Greek, but the way they say it is kinonia. Kinonia is derived from the adjective kinos, which means stuff held in common. So kinonia, fellowship or communion, we translate it, really means holding things together in common. And it's used later in this chapter. The adjective is used later in this chapter to describe possessions held in common by the early Christian disciples. You know, it says they would sell all their possessions and give them to the uh, apostles and the apostles distributed to each as each had need. And then someone named Annas and Sapphira withheld a little bit of their possessions. And what happened? God strikes them down dead, okay, for not sharing everything with the fellowship. Well, one of the interesting things about early Christianity, and, and, and we'll talk about this in the next two times that I talk about the early church, is that 
the word may have carried that stronger sense of a common life that is held together, not just occasional meals. Some early Christian monasteries practiced what, what they called a common life, kinos vios, common life. And almost all Christian communities practice some degree of sharing of resources. There's a Roman writer named Pliny, and he wrote to the emperor Trajan about the Christians, and he said, they're like heteriae. Now, it's an interesting word he uses, heteriae. It's a Greek word that he's using in Latin, but it was a word used to describe clubs, associations that people would make in which they would agree. It was kind of like an insurance contract. They would all contribute money to a common fund, and then they would agree that if anybody died, they would pay for their burial expenses, and they would help their family if they got in trouble, and so forth. So depicting the Christians as a heteria, as a little society or fellowship, sort of gives you the idea that they shared things in common. They had a common life together. Finally, the prayers. Uh, it doesn't just say prayers, it says the prayers at this point in Acts. I was reading the King James Version and I noticed actually it does say prayers, but the NRSV has got it a little more Greekly correct by saying the prayers. Other passages in the Acts suggest that Christians prayed at the third hour of the day, the sixth hour of the day, and the ninth hour of the day. Look at those verses if you want to, but it, it sort of makes a pattern. Three hours was, noon is when the sun is straight up ahead, and uh, it really depends upon the time of the year and so forth, but you've got sunrise, the third hour of the day, when the sun is halfway up the sky, the sixth hour of the day, that's noon, siesta, and then you've got the ninth hour of the day when the sun is halfway down the sky, and then you've got evening. So uh, one common pattern of prayer, seven times a day will I praise thee in the Psalms, and they use that verse as a way of saying, when you wake up in the morning, you should pray, and when the sun rises, you should pray. That tells you something about when they woke up. And then at the, ninth, uh, at the third hour, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, and then at sunset, and then when they went to bed at night, seven times of prayer daily. It's suggesting, I think, that maybe the prayers were uh, the customary Jewish prayers that were said at specific times of the day. Uh, for example, when a Jew uh, wakes up, they're supposed to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is one Lord, right? Uh, the, the Shema because uh, when the Shema is given in Deuteronomy, it says you shall say this at your going in and your coming out, at your rising up and your sitting down. So when you rise up and when you go to sleep, you say that particular prayer. We think that may refer to Christians' use of specific traditions of prayer. Christian communities today continue to observe these seven basic elements, preaching, faith, baptism, the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, the apostles' fellowship, uh, and the prayers. In our Articles of Religion as a United Methodist Church, it's an article that we have from the Church of England, which has the same article from the Lutheran Augsburg Confession. We say that the visible Church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men, just in case you're worried about this, in Latin it's cetus fidelium. It's just a coming together of faithful people that doesn't specify gender, okay? It's a coming together, a congregation of the faithful in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments duly administered 
according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. Now that last phrase, in all things that of necessity are requisite to the same, means they had a lawyer present when they were writing <laughs> this up. I'm sure we've puzzled over that for a long time. But look, almost all this stuff is there. Baptism and the breaking of bread are the sacraments. The word of God, the gospel, is preached. So there's preaching and the teaching of the apostles, a congregation, a coming together of the faithful and so forth. Doesn't mention the prayers, okay? Maybe that seventh element is not specific there, but it's a way of defining what's really important. We don't say the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men who sit in pews and have pipe organs or something like that, right? It's, 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 it's not, that's not the central thing. The central thing is these basic elements of the Christian church. So we celebrate the continuity of the church today with the her historic early Christian church, and it really does cause us to remember what is truly important in the church and truly important in our lives in the church. So sisters and brothers, I exhort you to consider as you become church, as your family uh, under a father and a mother, hopefully, but however your family functions uh, as a little small church, I want you to consider what it is that really makes us church, these very, very basic things that we have received from the first ages of the church. We're going to conclude by singing uh, a great hymn of faith that we often sing on Father's Day, and it's really not about our human fathers. This is really about the fathers of the Christian church. Uh, Dr. Faber, who wrote this hymn, was an ardent Catholic. We usually don't sing the verse that says, we pray that Mary's intercession will bring the whole world to Catholicism. Uh, <laughs> Protestants somehow leave that one out, but it's a great hymn to remember the fathers of our faith.